This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the web at goodjudgepod.com. There is perhaps no more dramatic moment in any trial, civil or criminal, than the moment the jury foreperson is asked, has the jury reached a verdict? Entire book and movie scripts have been built around that dramatic climax. As judges, though, we need to remember that we're not so much about building dramatic moments as we are to getting true verdicts according to the law. For that reason, this podcast is going to explore the proper procedures for achieving and receiving a verdict as laid out by the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals. So, Wade, first of all, what does the word verdict actually mean? You know, it's amazing that the guy with all the language training is asking me. Verdict, from the Latin verdictum, means true saying or to say the truth. But, Wade, I always hear lawyers tell juries that voir dire means to speak the truth. That's because they don't speak French and Latin like you. Voir dire actually is French, meaning to see and to speak. Silly Silly lawyers. lawyers. So, Wade, we're not going to spoil the ending of the book or anything, but what does the law say about when a verdict becomes a verdict? Is that when the jury says, we have a verdict? Well, no. The Supreme Court has said that verdicts acquire their legality from both return and publication. Well, what does that entail exactly? A verdict is only published when it is agreed to by the jury, written out, signed by the jury foreperson, and delivered to the clerk by the direction and in the presence of the judge. Several of the cases also indicate that a verdict is not published until it is actually read in open court. So let's go back to how we get to that point, the dramatic moment of the reading of the verdict. When does the process of receiving the verdict, as they say, really start? Well, of course, the first thing we do as judges is we charge the jury. Now, when I charge them, I always discuss with them how exactly they will render a verdict. You know, I tell them they will elect a four-person and that he or she will preside over their deliberations and record their unanimous verdict and then date it and sign it as their four-person. So on some other issues, once that jury does all that, do, do you use a verdict form? Do you provide a verdict form? I always provide a verdict form. Um, it's something that I have discussed with the attorneys beforehand during charge conference. And while this isn't required, I think it's certainly best practice. You know, we've looked at some of this before when we were doing NJO, Tane, and we were talking about the situation where you have a charge of murder and you have a lesser included being requested of voluntary manslaughter and just how important the verdict form can be. That's absolutely right. So, you know, in in some of those cases, you've got to make certain, first of all, that you've discussed it with the attorneys when they've requested a lesser included, and that you get the form structured in a way that the jury can understand what it is that they're supposed to do when rendering a verdict. And don't forget to let them vote for both guilty and not guilty, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Right. So it seems like, like using a verdict form 
sort of heads off a lot of problems, Tane. Definitely. A simple, well-worded verdict form can really help the jury understand its duty and avoid some confusion. The rule with verdict forms is always the simpler the better. There are some sample criminal and civil jury verdict forms, including with the outline of this podcast at goodjudgepod.com, our website. That is goodjudgepod.com. Now let's take one more quick detour while we're on our way to the jury verdict, and that's discussion of jury questions. First of all, Wade, do you tell the jury in your jury charge that they can ask questions? You know, there are two schools of thought on this. One school says, well, why invite jury questions by mentioning them in the charge? The second is, why not avoid unnecessary problems or waste of time by making the jury think that they have to figure everything out, all these technicalities and legalities, they have to do that on their own? Yes, I usually mention to the jury that they can send me a written question if they need to, and I add that that does not mean that I'll be able to answer it. So the next issue, Tane, if once you move from there, is how would you handle a jury question? I think there are some real best practices out there supported by some case law. Yeah, Wade, I agree. First, the jury begins their deliberations. After that time, the judge should not be communicating with them directly unless it is in the courtroom and with all the parties present. I don't really care if it's a substantive communication or not, because here the appearance of impropriety is always of concern. You know, one of the things that I try to do is make sure that the record shows who's in the room when I read a jury question. So I'll say, jury's out of the room, the defendant is present, I've gotten this question, all the lawyers are here, and I read it into the record. But anyway, that's just what I do. Yeah, I think that's a great practice, Wade, because it is important that that the record reflect that you're addressing these questions with the lawyers in the presence of the defendants and, and outside the presence of the jury. You know, as a second issue after, under this best practices, all jury questions should be in writing. Absolutely. Um, the third point on this is that any writing from the jury, whether it is a question or not, should be made a part of the record and shared with the parties. I make juries questions court exhibits. For example, the first question that comes to me would be court exhibit number one. And even when they send a verdict out, it's a court exhibit. And you would agree that even if it's, hey, what time can we go to lunch or something really perfunctory like that, you would make every single one of those a court exhibit, right? I do, because I don't want there to be any allegation that the court communicated with the jury about anything and didn't make it a part of the record. As a fourth best practice, once the question is received from the jury, it should be discussed with the attorneys and a resolution should be arrived at in the presence of all. You need to tell the attorneys how you're going to answer the question, solicit their input, and allow them to object and really consider those objections. That's right, Wade. I mean, I think a, a discussion of the question on the record and then a determination by you as to how you're going to answer the jury's question and then an opportunity for the lawyers to respond to that and say, Judge, I think if you said it this way, it would be better. Or, Judge, how about if we add this? I think that's always really, really helpful just to make sure, A, that the record's perfected and, B, that you're getting the best resolution to the question that you can get. You know, every time I've done one of these, I've found myself wording something incredibly awkward in my first draft and realizing that the lawyer's idea as to how to better word it usually helps me a lot. I agree. 
Well, the fifth point in answering jury questions is that you can either write the answer out to the jury and send it back with the bailiff, or you can bring the jurors into the courtroom and tell the answer to all. If you write the answer to the question out, though, I would certainly suggest that you have the bailiff return that to you and make it a court's exhibit. However, I really prefer to call the jurors into the courtroom and explain the answer to them because the reason is I can usually gauge whether I've actually answered their questions by the looks on their faces and their responses. You know, sometimes, though, they ask you a question you simply can't answer. Absolutely. And and I usually don't call them in when I simply can't answer it because they're going to see it in my face. You know what I mean? Well, I I sometimes do call them in the courtroom for those. And and the reason is I want them to understand that I'm taking seriously the fact that they've asked a question and, and just explain to them, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes there are questions under the law that I simply can't give you an answer to. And this is one of those questions. Once the jury retires, give the parties another chance to object after the jury returns to the jury room. In other words, after you've made the answer. I usually say something like, anything else, counsel? Are there any further objections or comments to the manner in which I answered the jury's question? Something like that so that it's triggered. And if, because you know, as you well know, if it's not objected to, unless it's plain error, it's waived. That's correct. And you have to remember, too, that even when you're answering a jury's question, that's a charge to the jury. It's something that should be treated just like when you give the jury a charge uh, in your formal charge to the jury. Just as an aside, try to be really careful not to forget your alternate. Uh, We've done that (laughs) once when we were feeding everybody lunch and all of a sudden we realized alternates sat in that room by themselves throughout the entire lunch. So don't forget your alternate. Just a fun fact from experience that you're not really all that proud of. One of my colleagues, wasn't me, I promise, but one of my colleagues forgot the alternate when they excused the jury for the night and he finally let himself out of the courtroom, uh, courthouse about an hour later. Yikes. Mine wasn't that bad, but I did buy him lunch. (laughs) One more quick aside. I use written jury charges. When do you send the written jury instructions out with the jury? Do you send, do you do that? I do. For years, I didn't do that. I was afraid that sending those legal instructions out with the jury would create some kind of confusion in the jury room or that there'd be debates over, you know, what words meant in the charge or something like that. And then after a while, I I decided that I would give it a try and see what it would be like to send the jury charge, uh, the written charge out with the jury. And the result of it actually is that I haven't had nearly as many jury questions since I started sending the charge out with them. So there's no right or wrong answer as to how to do that, but I personally am now a believer in sending the charge out with the jury. And I would say that I do it too and have done it since the beginning for exactly the same reasons that you're saying. Yeah, and the only thing I will say about that as an aside is in order to be able to do that, you have to have a good bit of preparation of the jury charges ahead of time, even before the charge conference, to get them ready. As an aside to that aside, I actually have a base set of charges that I have spent the time to make them gender specific and either single defendant or multiple defendant specific. All of the things that you're always going to charge, the burden of proof, the credibility of witnesses, et cetera, et cetera, so that I have that ready to go. And then I plug in case specific things. For example, if there's a custodial statement or if identification is an issue or if they have crime-specific charges, I plug that into that base core. 
I guess, set of jury charges. But anyway, that's an aside of what I do. Yeah, we do the same thing, Wade, and then those are already prepared ahead of time. And don't ever forget, also for you judges, you can get the most up-to-date copies uh, and versions of the uh, pattern jury charges off sidebar. And we usually use that in every case just to make sure we have the most current versions. So now we have, we've charged the jury and we're going to receive the verdict. Once all the jury's questions have been answered and the dust settles, at some point they're going to reach a verdict. Hopefully sooner rather than later, not always the case. They will usually communicate that they have reached a verdict by sending a note to the bailiff who then gives it to you or somehow knocks on the door and the bailiff reports to you, jury has a verdict. That's right. And the practice that I use at that point is to call everyone back into the courtroom um, before we call the jury in. Um, In my jurisdiction, in criminal cases, the sheriff likes to be notified when there's a verdict in a criminal case because they usually send extra security into the courtroom at that time while the jury verdict is read. Um, I guess it's to make sure that there are no outbursts or problems with the defendant or the defendant's family or the victim's family or friends. Um, And so I usually give the sheriff's office a heads up for that purpose before I take the bench and certainly before we call out the jury to render the verdict. Now, once everyone's in their respective places, I announce that the jury has communicated to me that they have reached a verdict. If they've sent me a note, I make it an exhibit in the case. And uh, I sometimes ask the parties if they're ready to receive the verdict. But uh, regardless, at that point in time, I then call for the jury to be brought in. What's next, Wade? Well, once everyone's seated, and that being all the jurors, I'll say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, your foreperson has notified the bailiff that you have reached a verdict. These next three questions are for your foreperson, and that person will generally stand. And usually, I know you don't always identify your foreperson, but, but we usually do. Do you identify we, the foreperson by name? We don't identify them by name, but I have my bailiff have the foreperson sit in the first seat on the front row so that I'll know who they are. Okay. So here are my questions to the foreperson. Foreperson, has the jury reached a verdict in their response? Yes, Your Honor, we have. <laughs> Is this Foghorn Leghorn? Yeah, absolutely. He was our he was our last four person. Great. Was that verdict unanimous? I say I say yes, it was, Your Honor. Has the verdict form been filled in to reflect that verdict, signed and dated by you as the four person? Absolutely, Your Honor. From this point, there are some very important steps that you, as the judge, need to follow to ensure that the proper verdict is rendered. There's an important case that's cited in your materials called Washington that goes through the importance of the steps that we're going to go through here. And you may want to take a look at that. We were going to go over the facts of it, but it has a pretty complicated fact pattern. So uh, we're not going to try to delve into that here. Um, a judge, though, in, re- in seeing that a verdict is rendered, has a duty to insist on a legal verdict, which is a verdict that is responsive to the issues framed in the indictment or accusation and the evidence. This means that the trial court has a duty not only to tell the jury what the law is, but to insist that they apply it and either render a verdict or else make a mistrial. You would have the foreperson hand the verdict form to the bailiff so you can review it for correct form. This may be as basic as making sure only one box is checked on a particular line or only one blank filled in for each count of the verdict. But you would make sure also that the foreperson has signed it and correctly dated the form. This is an aside, but we usually give our jurors, I don't know what the thought process behind this, probably a security thing. We usually give them pencils to take notes during the trial. I don't really want the verdict form signed in pencil. 
So I usually find a pen somewhere to ensure that they have a pen to sign their verdict form. But that's, again, those are the small potatoes things that you learn over years that don't strike you immediately when you're, when you're, when you're thinking about jury trials and receiving a verdict. Well, and, you know, you think that when the verdict form is simply checking a box or filling in a blank, that most of the time you wouldn't have any problems with that. And a lot of us as judges get a little bit lax about that sometimes. But I actually had recently in a criminal case a verdict, I mean, a jury foreperson fill out the verdict form with the wrong verdict. He actually checked not guilty when it was supposed to be a guilty verdict. And we only caught it because it was a theft case. And in that case, whether it was a misdemeanor or a felony crime depended on the amount the jury found that was taken. And the jury had actually filled in the amount, but checked not guilty. So I called the lawyers up to the bench, which we'll talk about in just a moment, and said, Attorneys, I think there's a problem with the form of this verdict. Please review it and see if you agree. We sent the jurors out. We discussed that for a moment. Both sides agreed that there was an obvious problem with the verdict form because both something on the not guilty blank and something on the guilty blank were filled out. We brought the jurors back in gave them the verdict form back and said, we want you to go back in the jury room and make sure that this verdict form reflects what your unanimous verdict was in the jury room. If it is not, make any corrections you need to make and initial those corrections for, as the foreperson and then bring that verdict form back to me. The foreperson took the verdict form, looked at it before they walked back to the, ver- to the jury room and said, oh my gosh, I checked the wrong blank. <laughs> I said, nevertheless, go back to the jury room and make sure that whatever verdict form you bring back out reflects the unanimous verdict of the jury. They went back in, checked the proper box, the foreperson put his initials by it, and then they came back out and followed the procedure we're going to go over now. Do you think there would have been anything wrong in that case in giving them a clean one? I don't think so at all. Making the first one a court's exhibit and then make it and giving them a clean one to say start over? I don't think so at all. Uh, just in the heat of the moment, that was what I thought of first, and so I sent them back. But no, I think if we gave them another verdict form and said, just go back in and mark this and make sure that it uh, reflects your verdict, uh, your unanimous verdict in the jury room, I think either one of those would be not only fine, but would be proper. So now you've gotten the verdict form in your hands, you need to have counsel approach the bench and, ref- and review the verdict form and the verdict itself as to form only. This is a requirement of the law, and I will tell you that I have colleagues even in my own circuit who refuse to do this. I don't understand the logic because, again, while it does diminish the dramatic moment and the sort of the building of the crescendo here, at some point that's not our job. At some point, we are trying to get a verdict. If it happens to be dramatic to the public or to friends and family or the media, then fine. But my role is not to be dramatic. My role is to ensure, honestly, that I have a verdict that is clean, that the lawyers have consented to and not objected to, that they've seen it. I mean, that's just sort of what I do. And as they walk away, I'll look at them and I say, counsel, are there any issues on the form of the verdict as rendered by the jury? They say no. We have a lot of waiver going on right there. That's right. 
Um, and I wanted to go back to the point you were just talking about a minute ago with respect to the drama of the moment. As we said at the beginning, like you said, we're not in the business of creating drama. We're in the business of getting correct verdicts. One of the things I don't do in criminal cases is have the defendant stand while the verdict is being read. There's a really good reason for that. It's a whole lot easier to run or to do something stupid if you're standing than if you're seated at a table and unable to get up. And the deputies and the sheriff like it a whole lot better if I just let them stay seated. You know, one of the things, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, there's a lot of things that have to do with receiving a verdict that aren't in the law, that there aren't in statutes. And so you saw that on TV, the defendant had to stand, his knees buckle when they read the verdict or whatever. That's it's absolutely legal. It's just not required. Exactly. So Tane, so now we've got, we've asked the council, they've walked away. Do y'all have any objections to the form of the verdict? However, that's worded. And they both say yes, no, whatever. What now? Well, if they say yes, then I think you need to send the jury out, discuss with the lawyers what they perceive the problem is, figure out how to re-instruct the jury as to the problem, bring them back in and instruct them as to it, just as you would with any jury question. If they say no, then at that point, the procedure is you hand the verdict form to the appropriate person to be read. Who is that? Well, it's whomever you choose. Some judges like to read the verdicts. Some have the clerk read it. I have the four-person read it because I feel like it's the jury's verdict and I want the four-person to, uh, to be responsible for reading it. But there's no one correct way. There's nothing that's set out in the law about it. And quite frankly, the case law says simply it has to be read in open court. The main issue is that the verdict must be read in open court to be, quote, published, end quote. Now, once the verdict is read in its entirety, I ask the attorneys for each party whether there's anything further that's required of the jury before they're dismissed. If either side asks for the jury to be polled, have the clerk call the jurors' names, and I think in some circuits they just use numbers instead of names of the jurors, and ask each juror the following three questions. Was that your verdict in the jury room? Was it freely and voluntarily made by you? Is it still your verdict? Now, hey, my, Wade, is, yeah. that, is that something that's required by law or written down in some statute somewhere? I looked for this for days. <laughs> trying so did to, I. Trying to teach something, and it's just simply not there. It came from a really old case, and the whole point is that you are trying to ensure that that verdict was not coerced, that it is that it truly is unanimous. These questions have evolved, and, and frankly, they've been the, the questions everybody has asked since probably the 60s, but they just evolved out of case law. It wasn't any magic thing. Just as another practice point, I usually start with the four-person. The four-person's already stood up and been a little nervous in the courtroom, so I'll start with the four-person and asking these poll questions, and then the other jurors can hear the back and forth and sort of the drill, and I know the four-person's engaged, and so then hopefully the rest of them can say whatever they need to say. But as long as those three questions are asked, I know those are valid. Could you get away with asking two questions or wording them differently? Probably. But why? Just if, if we've got a tried and true, let, let, it, let, it, let it remain. I totally agree. Well, as long as each person says yes to each one of those questions, you're home free. If not... You can declare that the verdict does not appear to be unanimous. So if one of the jurors says, well, no, that wasn't my verdict in the jury room, or no, it wasn't freely and voluntarily given, judge, everybody forced me to give a verdict, or something weird like that, then obviously the procedure at that point would be to send them back to the jury room, tell them to continue their deliberations because they have not yet reached a unanimous verdict, and let them continue to deliberate either until they reach a hung jury or until they reach a verdict. 
If each juror does say yes, then I turn to counsel and ask whether the jury can be dismissed. If there's no objection, then I dismiss the jury. Some version of the following should be used. Jurors, your service is now ended. Please retire to the jury room one last time, and from there you will be excused. Or something like that. Don't thank the jury for their verdict. You can thank them for their service publicly, but don't thank them for the verdict, because then if you don't thank the next one, that that implies something that you thought the verdict ought to be differently, etc. Leave that alone. You can thank them for the service. Just be careful not to thank them for their verdict. Yeah, once I have excused the jurors to the jury room, I usually go back there and present them at that time with a certificate that my county has for their service. And uh, also, usually we have their checks prepared for their service for the week, and I give those to the jury in the jury room. At that point in a criminal case, also, uh, as the jury, uh, once the jury has retired, I set sentencing for either later that day or some date appropriate in the future. In a civil case at that point, once the jury has retired to the jury room, I order counsel for one of the parties to draw up a judgment form that will incorporate the jury's verdict because that's something that has to be done in a civil case. I know that people are going to find this next fact hard to believe, but Tane and I don't agree on everything, and you're about (laughs) to learn one place that we don't agree. At the point in which the jurors are dismissed, by law, they are free to talk to the attorneys or not and to discuss the case with others or not, and you can instruct them in that regard. My instructions to my jury basically say, and I do this in the courtroom, that thank you for your service. Remember, not your verdict, your service. Thank you for your service. The clerk will meet with you to give you your your documentation for work and school excuse, etc., And you can talk to the lawyers or others about your service now if you want to or not. But I'm going to give you a head start. I am specifically ordering that no one can contact you about your verdict on this property. What I'm trying to do is let those people who don't want to participate in the sometimes a bit of a festival that happens after a jury verdict where their family wants to holler at the jurors or the lawyers want to or whatever – I, let, I make them do it somewhere other than here, so hopefully the passions can die down, etc. By contrast, Tane's next step is a little different, not necessarily as to who's talking to who, but why don't you tell everybody what you do immediately after you've excused them back to the jury room? Sure. I go back to the jury room, and as I said, I usually have their certificates for service to give to them and their checks for service, and I go back there, and I do thank them for their service one more time. I give them the checks. I tell them, uh, quite frankly, if they have any questions about the procedures or how we did what we did or something along those lines, uh, that I can probably answer those questions for them if they'd like for me to. I won't speak about the verdict. I won't speak about the case, and particularly in a criminal case where I haven't done sentencing yet. We won't talk about anything having to do with the verdict. But I also always tell them, I'd like to know if there's anything else that we can do to make your jury service more comfortable or more convenient because, you know, we're always trying to improve the process for them. And um, it's a it's a very helpful uh, process for me to go back and speak to them. I also tell them, if you'd like to speak to the lawyers, the lawyers would certainly like to talk to you in many cases. And I have the lawyers remain in the courtroom. Any juror, if they want to talk to the jury, any juror who wants to speak to the lawyers can go back into the courtroom and do so 
I have a bailiff go with them just to make sure everything, you know, is is uh, appropriate and that everyone's acting appropriately. And then I have my other bailiff escort the other jurors who don't want to speak to the uh, to the lawyers out of the courthouse. Now, understand my courtrooms on the seventh floor of the courthouse. We usually excuse them from the first floor jury assembly room. So my bailiffs are actually taking them through the back access hallways where no one can get to them, taking them seven floors down and releasing them from the first floor. So uh, they're pretty safe from being having to speak to anybody who uh, they don't want to talk to if they go out that way. When the other jurors finish talking uh, to the lawyers, I have that bailiff who's with them in the courtroom escort them out of the uh, courthouse. You know, folks, we recognize that Tane being in Cobb County and me being in Augusta, that we are blessed with some resources that not all of our colleagues have. And there's not a lot of seven-story buildings in, in a lot of towns in Georgia, and we recognize that. The point really is not the seven-story. The point, the point is, are you going to let the jurors talk to the lawyers immediately? Does that help the lawyers? Do you want to help the lawyers? Do you want to make sure that you protect everybody? You know, so we, we're trying to plant seeds for you to think through how you would handle it, not the fact that, that Tane has seven floors or I have four or whatever. That, that that's not really the point. The point is whether you're going to keep the jury uh, away from the public or not post-verdict. But anyway, Tane, I guess that's the wrap-up we have for how to receive a verdict. That Washington case is really important. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, it's great to, uh, great to be with you again. And uh, remember, visit us on goodjudgepod.com. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council Superior Court judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. <laughs> but seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience. And the crowd goes wild. <sighs> Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.